Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. Okay, Kenna, today I wanted to ask you, were you ever suspended from school growing up? No, I was a good girl. (laughs) Okay, but okay, here's the thing though. Everyone thought I was bad. Because I was, like, goth and hung out with, like, all the bad kids or, like, was, like, into metal or, like, I did, like, I was no, I was honestly, like, probably way better than, like, the youth group kids who were, like, supposedly, like, all the good kids. But, like, I got, like, good grades and was good in school and, but everyone thought I was bad, but I was good. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Everyone where I grew up, uh, kind of similar, kind of different. They all thought um, I was, like, heavily involved in meth use because I was so skinny. Yeah. And then, like, I remember in high school, um, one of my friend's older sisters told her parents I wasn't allowed over at their house because I was clearly just on meth all the time. Um, but I just, I have ADHD, so I just oh. am very, very hyper and very, very, like, small and, like, ee, Skeletor. And then... um you know, she had this whole, like, sit down with the family, and she was like, Madeline can't come over. She's clearly addicted to drugs, which even if I was an addict, like, what? That's not the way you handle that situation, oh, right? It's terrible. It's, like, fucked up. That's, like, not how you treat people who are struggling with healthcare issues, but whatever. So, um, then one day I went to my friend's house, because she told me this happened, and her sister answered the door, and she was like, what are you doing here? And I was like, oh, I think I left, like, my meth pipe here last week. And then she just looked at me like, what the fuck? I knew it. And I was like, it's a joke, but yeah. Um, but no, so similar. I was a pretty good kid, but people definitely thought I was like a bad influence to have around their children. Yeah, weren't you like the valedictorian of your high school? I was. I was valedictorian. Um, but I kind of gave them hell. Like I was, okay, so I was suspended once in high school. And, um, I remember it was like a last straw kind of thing because I had been difficult in class for years. Like, I fought with all of my teachers all the time. I was the kid in like history and government classes who like stood up and screamed, that's not what happened. And then like, like people literally had to escort me out of classrooms while I was yelling. I violated dress code every day. Like I had my nose ring in, I had my hair dyed. I'd get into fights when people would try to like stop me about dress code. I got into fights with other kids in the hallways. Like sometimes kids would try to like, like I went to a school where people like fist fought a lot. So sometimes kids would, like, try to fight with me, and I would just, like, make fun of them a lot to try to not get in a fist fight. But it ended up, like, hallway altercations, like, me and other kids all the time. I ended up, like, skipping class most days of the week. Like, I would only show up for the classes I thought were fun, and then I would, like, turn in and pick up assignments. Um, At one point, the whole school, all the teachers had this meeting about, like, what to do with me, and there was, like, a line down the table and teachers were yelling because they didn't know like how to resolve the issue of Madeline and it was because I got really really good grades in all of my work so I was like a straight A student but I was just like disrupting school every time I stepped foot on campus and I think I was what most adults thought of as a bad kid because of that um but I was also though a white kid right I'm white so a uh, I went to a school that was predominantly not white and I was really good at school. I was like a straight A student, but I think that also statistically probably has to do with me being white, right? Because like school curriculum is like set up to benefit whiteness and something about like the way that I was bad, but as a student for whom the entire like system was set up to benefit me very obviously, right? Like I got good grades because the system was designed so people like me could get good grades. And something about me being, especially a white woman, I think I wasn't viewed as, like, a threat. I was viewed as, like, just an annoyance or something like Mm -hmm. that. And I never really got suspended or expelled, even though I think other kids, if they had done even a tenth of what I, I had, probably would have at my school. But I was just suspended that one time, and it happened to be the same time I was sitting in the office um, waiting to be suspended, and they announced my name as valedictorian over the loudspeaker, which was very funny, I guess. But yeah, I I was thinking about that and I was thinking about, um, you know, like if I had been black or like disabled, you know, in that same situation, I would not have been granted like the clemency or lenience or benefit of the doubt that I think I was as like a white little girl. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Right? So um, I was thinking about this and I was looking it up and black students with disabilities are like 
far more likely to get suspended in school than white able-bodied kids like I was. And um, as a result of that, are four times as likely to end up in correctional facilities like prison or jail. So today, I wanted to talk about a subject recommended by our Patreon subscriber, Charlie Wright, which is the school to prison pipeline. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, Kenna, how familiar are you with this term, school to prison pipeline? Um, I kind of understand. I mean, I feel like being from a prison town, it's like you tend to like just the prison is in the air, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just like the vapor that's, you know, in the, the little mountain town that I'm from. But like... It's basically, like, you start getting in trouble in school, you get into, like, juvie, and then uh, it just puts you in the system, and you just keep kind of offending. Right. Like, quote-unquote, offending in the eyes of laws, like, over and over again. For sure. So, it's definitely that. Some things that I didn't realize until I started looking into this, though, is it also um, refers to, like, the specific habits schools have of punishing certain students, So just, like, I was, like, the bad kid on campus, but I never really got into a lot of trouble. Like, a lot of the school-to-prison pipeline actually mirrors, like, the, like, racial and ethnic inequality that happens in society at large. So it also has a lot to do with schools punishing specifically um, disabled people Mm -hmm. and, like, black and brown, brown kids. Like, that's, like, the, who bears the brunt of it, right? And then how that contributes to those students, yeah, ending up in the system and later in life, like, ending up in prison, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, obviously, like, the history of the school-to-prison pipeline is a byproduct of racism and our, count- our country's legacy of slavery, first and foremost, because it involves prison. So, our prison system is the way it is because our country started using prison labor as, like, a nifty little loophole once slavery became illegal in the U.S., except by punishment for our crime. So next thing you know, we start making up all sorts of reasons to arrest recently freed black people who were just trying to go about their day and live their lives. And then like, boom, 157 years later, we live in a country with the most prisoners per capita out of every country in the world. We have just 4% of the global population, but 20% of the world's prisoners. And forced labor in the US in the prison system, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. That's a billion with a B where we force incarcerated people to staff call centers. I didn't know we did that one. I knew that. Yeah, uh, do 3D modeling. That I did not know. Yes, build furniture. And um, I knew, like, making clothes, even, like, TI uh, calculators have, I think, Um, used prison labor. My mom was saying something about um, where I grew up, the prisoners, I forget, they raise, like, some sort of livestock. Maybe it was even bison interesting yeah like they raise livestock and sell like sell the livestock and also make cheese that's really interesting i i think it was i might be wrong but it was something where i was like wow okay like an animal agriculture type situation kind of thing i think there used to also be like a prison rodeo where they would sell tickets to the prison rodeo whoa that's pretty dystopian uh i don't know if they do it anymore because Uh of legal reasons but i definitely know that used to be a thing yeah i mean i guess the whole thing's dystopian like prisoners also make military equipment is it any more dystopian to do the rodeo than to have prisoners like making military it's probably the equal level of dystopia (laughs) yeah oh also i saw a thing on maybe it was youtube or something where prisoners train um dogs for the visually impaired Yes, and also, like, here in California, we've talked about this before, we have the prison volunteer firefighters. Oh, yes, and then, like, the uh, fucked up thing about it is, like, they, after they are released, they cannot legally become firefighters, even though they have done all the work. Right, because they have the felony on their record or whatever. Yeah, so if you haven't listened to our episode on prisons in the U.S., it's called Keep Your Community Safe, Abolish Your Local Prison. We talk about this stuff quite a bit in there. A lot of the things we kind of just recapped. Um, But if we want to get into some of the specific info about how the school to prison pipeline started to take root as we see it in like current times, we probably need to take a look at what was going on in the 80s. So like most awful things, this can be traced back to, can you guess, Kenna, what happened in the 80s? Reagan. Yes, it's Reagan. (laughs) (laughs) I'm all Reaganomics. It was definitely Ronald Reagan. I mean... 
we have to give a little credit to Nixon because before Reagan, there was Nixon. So in the 70s, Nixon declared a war on drugs, which is just like a ridiculous thing, really. Like, how do you fight a war on an inanimate object? Like, I don't understand that. We in America will find a way. We'll fight anything. We will fight anything. We will wage war against anything. <laughs> Abstract ideas. Yes. Objects. Anything. Uh, so at any rate, you know, obviously the way you reduce drug use or the risk of harm associated with drug use is by legalizing it and treating addiction as a healthcare issue, which we have seen be successful, like everywhere they've tried it. Uh, but no, this is the United States. So we decided to do a war on it. <laughs> <laughs> like, we, like we do everything. Yeah. So by the time Reagan took office in 1981, he was kind of like towing that Republican party line. It was laid out by Nixon. Uh, and Reagan was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to continue this war on drugs. And I'm also going to do this whole tough on crime thing. So in doing this, drug use was wrapped up with crime in a neat little package by like the Reagan administration. And we decided to treat addiction, yes, like a crime issue rather than a healthcare issue, but throw a bunch more shit on it too. So in 1983, we saw the formation of the D.A.R.E. program, which brought police officers into classrooms to attempt to, like, scare students straight on the topic of drugs. And, Kenna, we've talked a little bit about D.A.R.E. before, I think. But just as a recap, you did D.A.R.E. in school, yes? Uh, Yeah, D.A.R.E., the drug program that taught everyone how to do drugs. Yes, exactly. And made them sound cool. (laughs) So I had D.A.R.E. too. uh, And, yes, it all, it it did just make us all really interested in trying PCP. And cocaine. I was like... Like fifth grade being like, what is cocaine? And they're like, it makes you feel so good. And you're like, what? (laughs) Yeah, it makes you feel the best you could ever feel. And you get energy, but don't do it. And you're like, wait, what? I'm getting conflicting information here. Yeah, no, definitely I came out of D.A.R.E. thinking PCP (laughs) sounded so cool. And then later I tried it and I was like, this is not as fun as that police officer made it sound. Uh, I could not lift a car over my head or jump off of a building or anything. Yeah, uh, PCP, uh... It's a wild one. No good. No, it was... I I, I wish I... uh, I'm not gonna go into... Like many things, (laughs) it was fun until it stopped being fun. (laughs) But whatever. So then, one year later, we had the 1984 Comprehensive Crime Control Act, which increased penalties for drug-related crimes. In 1986, the same year I was born, the Federal Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 was signed into law. And this was, um, yeah, like another part of this whole war on drugs thing. This new law imposed mandatory minimum sentences for people caught using drugs, doubling down on criminalizing drug use rather than creating a path for rehabilitation for addiction and thinking of it like the healthcare issue it is. Now, I want to point out something we've talked about before, uh, but just to bring this up again. While violent and property crime has gone down dramatically since the 80s, most people chalk that up to be there being like less lead poisoning now than there was 40 years ago or whatever, and not actually to any changes in policing or prison incarceration. We've cited this statistic before, but prisons have actually been found to increase your risk of committing crime by 7%. Police solve just 2% of all major crimes, and of that 2%, It's worth noting that 63% of wrongfully convicted people exonerated due to DNA evidence are black. So that 2% that they're solving is a whole mess anyway, built on racism too. So criminalizing drug use and getting tough on crime didn't actually do anything to contribute to our communities being safer today. Reagan is just like, yeah, yeah, we're getting tough on crime, blah, 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 we're on drugs. I'm guessing to just put fear into the hearts of the Republican masses to ensure votes while also like driving up incarceration rates for things like drug use to create an ever-growing base of free prison labor to uphold capitalism. Meanwhile, the thing that actually most people are starting to think did the most contributions to our communities getting safer was the Clean Air Act. The Clean Air Act was passed in 1970, which led to us cutting lead out of gasoline, which had been linked to aggressive behavior to the extent that lead exposure made people four times as likely to get in trouble with the law. And as lead began to be removed from gasoline, we saw lead rates in American blood dropping over 81% from 1976 to 1991. As the rates of lead poisoning dropped, crime rates dropped right along with them. And one study in Pittsburgh alone attributes up to 38% of the drop in violent crime through the late 80s to now to the Clean Air Act alone. And if that interests you, we have this whole episode about it called Everyone in Power Has Lead Poisoning, which is full of all sorts of interesting info on that. But nonetheless, Reagan was content to think that the decreasing crime rates 
were because of increased policing and incarceration, despite all evidence showing that this is not the case. And the idea of being tough on crime managed to trickle down all the way into our education system. So in 1994, Congress passed the Gun-Free Schools Act, requiring states to expel students who brought firearms to campus. This was more of a response to like gang violence, uh, which was kind of like a racist fear-mongering thing that the tough on crime idea focused on in the 90s. While yeah, there were gangs and they existed, organized crime has always existed in the US and it usually is where people turn when they don't have economic opportunities to earn a good living within the existing system or when people within organized crime seem to like show more care and compassion and empathy than the outside world does. Culturally, we were glamorizing things like the godfather, right? Like gangs of white people that we'd always known existed, but increasingly white people were more and more frightened of the idea that maybe black and brown people might be involved in organized crime too. So teenagers of color just became a scapegoat for this whole racist fear that happened. And then that same year, 1994, is when schools started um, amalgamating the war on drugs and the gun-free schools thing into one simple term to guide expectations of students' behavior, the zero tolerance policy. Oh, yeah. I remember at my high school, that was like, and actually elementary school. Now that I think about like all through school, because it's like a small school system, you know, there are some people I went to school with from kindergarten through high school. Wow. Like, same class. Oh my gosh. Uh, one guy now is now my um, dentist. Oh. <laughs> Whenever, I, if I visit my parents. But um, anyway, it was very, like, you, like, you get into a, you know, it was wild. If you got into a fist fight, even if, if, even if you did, if you got into a fist fight, but you didn't punch back, you got suspended. If you punch back, you got expelled. Whoa. In elementary school, they had zero tolerance on biting. Biting? If you bit another kid, uh, you would get expelled. And this, it was wild because I think it was because, like, we had, like, I don't think we had the best school nurse or policy or system. It was... um, uh, a really bad wild response to the AIDS epidemic. Oh yes, that makes sense. There were a lot of really weird things that came out. That yeah, were... where they're like, you can't bite another kid because like you can, blo-, you know, like yes. And I'm just like, now we know that that's stupid, right? But right, right. like, it was such like a backwards like school where yeah, there was like zero tolerance for like anything. Did you guys have to sign like a paper that like acknowledged the school zero tolerance policy in class? I don't remember, but it was like basically like I think that's why I was so um it was like I was so even though I was like I was good, it was just like I just did not want to get expelled or suspended because I knew getting good grades was the only and going to college was the only way I was going to get out. So exactly. I was like cuz like people would violate dress code like at one point, one of the things you could do to violate dress code was to dress in all black because it was right after Columbine. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, you could get expelled. Expelled. That's so wild. And there's only one, you know, there's no other schools to go to unless you want to go to a county over or the alternative high school, which may or may not let you in. Right. So it was like, like it was, it was, yeah, it, I just very much lived in fear because I'm like, oh, well, if my skirt is one inch above my fingertips like I don't want to get expelled like (laughs) yeah so I like I remember at our school we we had the zero tolerance policies and you had to sign them and it was like just a piece of paper that said yes I know if I'm caught ours was not as extreme as yours ours was just like if I'm caught with drugs or in a gang fight specifically had to be a gang fight or with a weapon I'll be instantly expelled no conversations about it nothing so we had like zero tolerance for weapons or drugs basically or for the gang thing because they sold drugs and carried weapons and that played into that whole war on drugs thing. So ours was definitely not as extreme as it sounds like yours were. But I did have a friend who was expelled in seventh grade on a zero tolerance thing because someone found a pocket knife in his locker, like a Swiss army knife basically. Yeah. And I feel like it was very similar. Like any, anything could get you expelled. But I also felt like it was not very fairly applied. Exactly. It's a little open-ended. Like, if I had gone to your school, I don't know. I wonder if I would have gotten into more trouble. Because everything I did at my school was annoying, yes. But it didn't violate any of the, like, um, zero-tolerance policies. I think you definitely would have gotten expelled at my school. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
But, but it's like a small rural town that's right. like majority white. I yes. don't know. It's like different. Than, it's way different than Fresno. I don't know, you know. Yeah, it's very interesting. So like I do remember zero tolerance policies were really extreme and they were put in place and kind of communicated, especially when you were a teenager, like at the high school level, that all teenagers were like potential threats just waiting to happen. Yeah. Oof. Yes, right? We were children, sure, but there was also this overwhelming idea that adults should fear us for some reason. I felt that way too, especially because, like, we were in a, you know, I, I keep reiterating, small town, but it was just like there was, like, actually for such a small town, a large contingency of, like, what you would call now, like, alt kids. Right. Which basically was, like, if you were, like, a weird kid, you just banded together. There were the freaks and there were the jocks. Right. We and freaks included, too. like, the goths, the metalheads, the skaters, like, uh, just general weirdos. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, non-denominational weirdos. <laughs> non-denominational <laughs> weirdos, yes. Yeah. And it's just, like, you, if you were not, like, a preppy, which, you know, it was, like, you know, a, 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 what you would call now basic... Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe it would be basic. They were like jocks. Jocks, yeah. Yeah. You were a jock. You were a jock or a freak, and if you were a freak, you had a target on your back. Yeah, that's really interesting. I feel like because I grew up in a place that was not predominantly white, um, like white privilege like cloaked the white kids. Like we as Mm -hmm. white kids didn't get in nearly as much trouble as kids of color did because of racism is the only thing I can think of. But like since the 90s, Zero tolerance policies have become increasingly vague and open-ended. Like, more like what you experienced at school. And and this, like, vague nature and open-ended, like, open to interpretation, like, notional idea of zero tolerance policies, it allows for swift disciplinary action for whatever an educator deems to fall under the guidelines laid out. So zero tolerance policies effectively became the broken windows theory of policing, but applied to a school level. Yeah, and we know that the broken windows has been totally debunked. Right. Do you want to explain what broken windows was? Broken windows is basically this idea that um, little things like property crime lead to bigger crime. They lead to an increase in crime. So you have to police very intensely things like property damage, broken windows and cars, like petty theft. You have to police that very strongly so crime doesn't grow, but it has been completely debunked. Right. It doesn't work. So what schools were doing was just kind of like what people were doing with this broken windows theory of policing in the 90s, like at the legal level, but schools were doing it at the school level. And they were like, okay, we'll crack down on small offenses in order to discourage more serious ones. However, just like at the like federal prison crime level, what we see is that increased punitive action for minor infractions does not create safer communities. If anything, it drives the victims of these policies into lives with fewer options and opportunities and increases their risk of reoffending. So then around 1995, like a year after, you know, kind of the zero tolerance policy then kicks off, an academic named John John J. Diulio Diulio Junior, I can't pronounce it. I'm so sorry. Names are hard. <laughs> Names are hard. Do you, Yulo? Well, this guy, we'll call him John. John coined the term super predators for a cover oh, story. Oh, God, I remember this. Yes, in the Weekly Standard, which was then a new magazine, and it was just full of conservative political opinion. So pr- super predator was a term being used to describe teenagers, mostly. Children. Children, and disproportionately black and brown teenagers who are chronically involved in altercations with the law. So we know that our police system is completely racist and corrupt and often does target and repeatedly harass especially black teenage boys. But this guy, John, with the last name I can't pronounce, he instead argued uh, that this was happening because of some sort of failure on the part of those boys themselves. He said it was the result of, quote, moral poverty, the poverty of being without loving, capable, responsible adults who teach you right from wrong. So that was this just makes me mad and sad to be like, oh, we can't blame the system that these kids grow up in. It's uh, it's all the kids, right? And obviously, it's super fucking racist, right? It's so racist, dude. Oh my god. And yeah, like, it's a subtle way for him to imply that black families aren't loving or exactly. something fucked up or infuriating with that. Exactly. Which also, he's doing this while refusing to take accountability for the ways in which poor people and people of color often have to work twice as hard as their white or like moneyed peers just to put food on the table due to systemic inequality in the U.S. 
Like, so yeah, maybe like in lower class families, your parents aren't present as much because they're like often working multiple jobs to support you, which is not anybody's fault, but is the fault of like a racist system. Yeah, or or just like the system is set up to specifically go after black people yes, and people and of color. Yes, and then those communities are over-policed. Yeah, but and it, this idea of the super predator, it stuck with American conservatives. They loved this. Also been debunked. There was a yes. good episode on You're Wrong About about, about the this. super predator, yeah. So this guy, John, said that by the year 2000, we would have 30,000 young murderers, rapists, and muggers roaming America's streets, sowing mayhem. <laughs> it's a very specific number, also. I feel like the specificity of the number makes it sound pseudoscientific, and then people like that. That's, like, the thing where they always, like, when we were growing up in the night, they're like, 10 million children a year go missing. And you're like, that's, like, 10% of children. Yeah, that's, that's not <laughs> And happening. you're like, I don't think that. Yeah, well, we don't have 30,000. In the year 2000, when I turned 13, there were not 30,000 young murderers, rapists, and muggers roaming America's streets. So, obviously, he was wrong. But according to him, this is a quote from him, they place zero value on the lives of their victims, whom they reflexively dehumanize as just so much worthless white trash. This is what he said. So, as you can see, he himself had a clear idea of the race or ethnicity of these super predators right out of the gate. If the victims were white people, then that means the super predators were people of color, right? In his head. And in reality, according to the Marshall Project, juvenile arrests for murder and juvenile crime generally had already started falling when his article was published. And by the year 2000, when tens of thousands more children were supposed to be out there mugging and killing, juvenile murder arrests had fallen by two thirds. Yeah, it's wild how um, crime just keeps getting lower and lower and people... Um, just cannot believe it and to me it's like yeah no wonder people don't believe that crime is getting low and lower because of people like this who get on like tv shows and like news yeah. networks and they have some sort of air of quote-unquote like respectability where you're just like what yeah no they definitely like make a living by fear-mongering it's fear-mongering and sensationalism so in 1995, what we have like culturally happening in the United States is this. We have a bunch of relatively new laws getting tough on crime. We have the increasing incorrect idea that crime is being committed by black and brown teenagers and zero tolerance policies in school, along with an increasing police presence via programs like D.A.R.E. And all of this sets the stage for what we now call the school to prison pipeline, which is a series of policies that increasingly view children of color as dangerous criminals that need to be controlled and put more and more emphasis on schools being the place to start carceral processes early. Today, these policies have led us to a place where across the United States, police officers routinely arrest children and transport them to juvenile detention centers for minor classroom infractions, while police are allowed to roam schools fully armed and are given unfettered authority to stop, frisk, detain, question, search, and arrest school children on and off school grounds. Um, okay, to go back to the episode about the Olympics, at one point, the LA school district had a tank that's right they had an armored vehicle so wild and and we've seen videos of students being physically restrained by police officers in classrooms it's like we as a country have forgotten that these are literal children being abused and traumatized when they should be cared for it's not uncommon for there to be a permanent station of police officers on campus at many high schools i know we had an on-campus police station at my high school when i was growing up uh, we did not. I Which like, I am yeah. actually surprised by because it being a prison town, there were lots of cops in that city for, like, such a small amount of people. Yeah, so maybe it's, like, bigger schools probably are more likely to have them. Or, maybe, like, more, like, urban schools. You know, also, though, you went to a predominantly white high school. I went to one that was not predominantly white, and that's probably why we have an increased pl- uh, police presen- presence um, there, too. Also, at my school, we had a gun range in the basement for ROTC. Yeah, that is wild. That <laughs> never ceases to blow my mind. That is just <laughs> shocking information. <laughs> yeah, oof. Living uh, rural areas. Oof, man. So from 1997 to 2007, the number of these police officers placed in schools, which are called SROs or school resource officers, it increased by like 38% according to some accounts, um, but at a minimum by one third nationwide. They were supposed to be put there to protect students from things like mass shootings. However, in reality, they just continued the racist policing policies happening in the community at large, just inside of a school setting now. The idea of discipline in an academic setting has become synonymous with police or carceral action. 
In 2013, Congress held a hearing on this phenomenon and Senator Richard Durbin of Illinois remarked, for many young people, our schools are increasingly a gateway to the criminal justice system. This phenomenon is a consequence of a culture of zero tolerance that is widespread in our schools and is depriving many children of their fundamental right to an education. As with most things in the U.S., these policies are disproportionately affecting students of color and students with disabilities. According to the U.S. Department of Education Office for Civil Rights, black students are three and a half times more likely than their white classmates to be suspended or expelled. One report also found that white students with disabilities, oh, while students with disabilities, sorry, make up less than 10% of the public school base, they make up 32% of use in juvenile detention centers. And among disabled students, we see the intersection of race play out too. About one in four black children with disabilities get suspended at least once versus just one in 11 white students with disabilities. Even controlling for variables like socioeconomic class, studies have found that black students are just disproportionately punished at a much higher rate than their peers, as are children with emotional disabilities. Jackie Gradington, chair of the NEA Black Caucus, says studies have shown that a black child, especially a male, is seen to be a bigger threat just because they exist. According to Kirwan Institute research on implicit bias, black students do not act out in class more frequently than their white peers, but they are more likely to be sent to the principal's office for subjective intangible offenses like disrupting class, and they're more likely to be sent there by white teachers. These racial differences in suspension rates have grown since the 1970s, back when Nixon first introduced the war on drugs and mirror prison incarceration issues with race. Today, more people are sent to prison in the U.S. for nonviolent drug offenses than for violent crimes. And just like black students are more likely to be punished in classrooms, black adults are more likely to be punished by police and courts at a carceral level. Black people are 13 times more likely to be in prison for things like drug use, despite not using drugs at a at a higher rate than their white peers and two out of every five black people sent to prison are sent there for drug offenses versus just one in four white prisoners in total black men are incarcerated at nearly 10 times the rate of white men nationwide and many of these are wrongful convictions black people are seven times more likely to be wrongfully convicted of murder than white people and 12 times more likely to be wrongfully convicted of drug possession than white people Those are huge numbers, like 12 times as much, that's 1,200%. That's a huge jump. And just like prisons don't make communities safer, punitive discipline at a school level doesn't make students like academically perform any better either. Students assigned to stricter middle schools, like where they're more likely to like crack down on you if you break rules, they are 3.2 percentage points more likely to have been arrested, two and a half percentage points more likely to be incarcerated as adults. They are also 1.7 percentage points more likely to drop out of high school completely and 2.4 percentage points less likely to attend a four-year college. So the types of discipline being used um, are like re-entering severe territories as well. In 2010, over 250,000 students were referred to police officers for misdemeanor tickets for minor classroom infractions. Things which teachers acknowledge in the past, yeah, probably would have just elicited, like, a stern talking to. This, like, blows my mind to me. Like, that a cop could, like, arrest you or give you a ticket for something, like, minor you did in class. Like, that same year, 2010, one 12-year-old girl was handcuffed, arrested, and transported from her school to an NYPD police precinct where she was detained for several hours, all for writing, I love my friends Abby and Faith on her desk in Spanish class with an erasable marker. They said it was vandalism. Oh my God. I know. It's just mind blowing. In 2013, seven North Carolina teenagers staged an end of year prank. Did you guys do those at your high school? I don't know. I was not into, uh, what do you call it? Like uh, school spirit. Yeah. Not into it. Okay. So in our school, there were end of year pranks. These were pretty common. So these kids did a water balloon fight, which honestly is like a pretty mild one. You know, that's not bad. They just had a water balloon fight at school. They were all arrested and charged with disorderly conduct. Wild. One sixth grade student at a school was arrested for kicking a trash can. Sixth grader. Yeah. One high school junior went to get her driver's license only to find out that she had a warrant for her arrest that had been issued when she was in middle school for a fist fight she got into when an older girl attacked her. Apparently, her teacher had instructed the police to give her a ticket, and it had been issued without her even realizing. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
In 2015, a video went viral of a police officer flipping over a teenage girl at her desk, throwing the girl across the room. And Black and Latino students account for 70% of these police referrals from schools. As one article on Vox explains, it's not surprising to see these types of things play out though when you realize that the school discipline and the criminal justice system have already been intertwined. NEA executive committee member Kevin Gilbert said, my eyes were opened by a young man I met who spent 21 days in a juvenile detention center basically for talking back in class. As the Vox article states, in many cases, schools themselves are the ones pushing students into the juvenile justice system, often by having students arrested at school. From 2011 to 2012 alone, 92,000 students were arrested in schools, like full arrest, and 74% of them were for low-level violations. The chief judge of the juvenile court in Clayton County, uh, Georgia, once remarked to Congress at a 2012 hearing that these arrests were happening because kids had simply made an adult mad. I'm sure, I'm sure if that would have been an option at the high school that I went to, there would have been kids arrested all the time. Yeah, it definitely is getting much worse for sure based on all the data. It's like a widening amount of arrests that are happening like every single year. So I feel like you and I, like I started high school maybe in 2000, 2001, I think 2001. 2000? Yeah. Maybe 90... maybe the tail end of 99 yeah so we kind of like got the beginning effects of all of these like new policy changes in the 90s like we got the zero tolerance i had the police station you know on campus but i feel like all of these things are just getting exacerbated and it's becoming like an increasing issue because these things too now that i'm hearing like a sixth grader getting arrested for kicking a trash can that definitely would not have happened at my school at my school we had, first of all, we had a pregnant sixth grader, which is very, very sad. And she punched our principal in the face. And she was not even, I think she was suspended, but she came back to school. Like, she was not arrested. No, You know what I mean? So a sixth grader is like, that's a child. There's obviously a lot happening in the story about my school. But, you know, it's to punish these kids like this, I, I don't think it would have been that extreme. We caught the beginning of it, and it's just gotten a lot worse over our lifetime, basically. I do remember, though, when I was in elementary school, the state of Colorado still had corporal punishment. For students? Yeah, like, I think a, a teacher or a principal could legally spank you. Whoa, that's pretty wild. I'm pretty sure. Like, maybe it was, like, very, very young, or they were just like, now we can't do that anymore. But I remember they, like, didn't make it clear that the principal could not spank they you. They implied there was implicit spanking. Wow. Yeah, so there it may have not been legal, but they weren't like, maybe. They were like, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. That is so <laughs> wild. Well, okay, so another major thing people look at when examining the school-to-prison pipeline is the increasing popularity of specifically suspension as a disciplinary tool. So suspensions became more and more common like every single year. And studies show that removing children from school for any reason, including disciplinary suspension, does not contribute to any positive behavioral changes for those students. All in all, a suspension interrupts a student's learning and also can be life altering for that student. It is the number one predictor, more than poverty, of whether children will drop out of school, encounter increased likelihood of unemployment, and ultimately, yes, end up in prison. Yeah, I... To me, it's so wild in a place that's, like, supposedly, like, we're teaching children, like, the the ways of the world or education, whatever, to have it be so punitive rather than, like, we're suspending you to basically fuck, like, fuck you, like, we fucking can't stand you, get out of here, instead of just being like, we want to help you, like, how do we make this better, like, what do we, if it's, like, something that's really bad behavior, like, why don't we teach you? How to change it. Right. No, exactly. It is, it's very punitive. And it is just, yeah, adults getting annoyed with children, which is I, wild because, like, you chose this position. I, okay. Well, I mean, this is a hot take where I feel like sometimes, like, like being a teacher attracts people who really like being in power dynamics where they have more power. I definitely have had a few teachers like that growing up. There were definitely some teachers I had where I'm like, like, now as an adult, I look back and I'm like, why were you fighting with me? I was 12. Yeah, I had like, a teacher call me a bitch when I was in elementary school. That's and I'm wild. Like, I would <laughs> never, ever do that to a kid. That's so Like, wild. even if the kid did something where I was like, oh my god. Yeah. I would just, 
I would never call a kid a name. That's so silly. That's it's, so wild. It's ridiculous. So, like, according to an article in U.S. News & World Report, children who attend schools with high suspension rates, specifically, they're significantly more likely to be arrested and jailed as adults, but especially if they are black or Hispanic and a boy. Like, these specific things. And this starts as early as preschool. When black children represent just 18% of preschool students in the U.S., they still account for 48% of preschool suspensions. Wait, you can, wait, you can get suspended in preschool? Yes, these are like four-year-olds. Um, I will say when I was like a teeny tiny little kid, I may have bit another child. Did you get suspended for biting a child? I did not. Yeah. I was a baby. Because you're a child. You're four. <laughs> you're a toddler. I think I was like two. It's wild. So studies continuously show that there is a correlation between higher levels of education and lower levels of what's called criminal activity, which makes sense when you consider that high, higher levels of education correlate with higher crime and police are less likely to patrol higher income areas. Like poor communities of color are consistently over-policed according to all available data, mostly due to racism compounded into new police algorithms, which is something we talked about in our episode, The Racist Ghost in the Machine. So it's not like poor people are out doing all the crime. It's like, yeah, police are highly centered in poor communities of color and they're doing all the stop and frisk. They're over-policing. And as we see from all of the data about wrongfully convicted people, they're just arresting people for no reason. I feel like if, uh, like, you can make anything a crime. Like, I yeah. feel like you could get, like, if the police want to arrest you, they will find a reason. They will. That's true. Going to college is one potential way to like earn enough income to price yourself into a nicer neighborhood where police simply maintain less of a presence. However, as one report shows, even minor in-class suspensions can hinder students' ability to apply to and attend college. 73% of American colleges and universities collect high school disciplinary information, and 89% of those use that information in their admissions decisions. So having suspensions on your record in high school adversely affects students' abilities to further their own ed- education with college. That's one thing. Okay, everyone's talking about how now many colleges are not requiring SAT and ACTs because basically if you're rich, you can pay for the programs or right. like... I think it was one like Ivy League school that was like um to you don't for like this certain degree I think it was like a humanities degree you don't have to know Latin anymore because who who knows Latin people who go to private school right and it's like why don't you also take off disciplinary and suspensions because they disproportionately affect people of color right and it's the same thing with sats actually they were finding that the sats were ending up being super racist and it's like okay these disciplinary reports are also super racist it's compounding like the racism of like individuals and also like our educational systems all into one thing also it's just like they're fucking kids they're children yeah to expect that children will have a clean record with no disciplinary action is i feel like that's too extreme you know as children like that's what you're doing. You're testing your place in the world. You're pushing boundaries. You're trying to like figure things out and figure yourself out. And like, especially because I was such like a, like a bad kid. Cause I was fighting with everybody all the time. Just like knowing that for many like kids of color, like children of color aren't given the opportunity to be kids like that. Like if you, like for me, if I was like, I shoplifted, I'm bad. <laughs> it's like, Oh, she's just figuring out the world. But like, if I were a black boy and I shoplifted, like I could end up in prison for the rest of my life based on that offense, you know? Or I could be killed by the police. Like, you just, we're not viewing children of color as children. We're not giving them opportunities to, like, try things out and make mistakes and, you know, do the normal kid stuff that you're supposed to do. Yeah, and people forget that your brain keeps developing, like, into your 20s. Yeah, your brain's not even developed. Um, So, additionally, there's also, like, the obvious issue that if you get suspended, like just being out of class makes it harder for you to follow the material and harder to catch up when you come back to class, right? And this leads to overall lower performance in class at the high school level, which also makes applying for higher education more difficult. 31% of students who were suspended or expelled from school had to repeat a grade compared to just 5% of students who didn't. And then there's also the issue that once students start uh, struggling to keep up with the materials, Teachers are actually incentivized to remove them from the classroom due to increased demands for teacher accountability, contributing to things like standardized tests. 
having students perform poorly on a test reflects badly on the teacher and they can like honestly get in trouble for it at the school level. Sometimes it's easier to find a reason to remove students from the classroom completely than do the hard work of actually trying to teach them if they're struggling, which some people suspect may be another component of why students with learning disabilities are suspended with more frequency. Oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Be like, well, I have to teach to this test if this kid, I don't think this kid will do good on the test. Right. I'm going to find any reason. Well, and also maybe like if you have like an emotional disability, you're like not, you're not kind of like reacting in the classroom setting the same way as some of the more like neurotypical children or kids who don't have that. Then it becomes like you're an easy target too. Mm-hmm. So students who have been suspended or expelled are also three times more likely to come into contact with the juvenile probation system the following year compared to someone who wasn't. And if you're thinking like maybe it's a correlative issue, like maybe it's just bad kids who've been bad their whole lives and would keep being bad no matter where you put them and it's not the suspensions that are causing it, well, there is actually a study for that too. Researchers found that students who had been reprimanded in class for similar behavioral issues but not suspended or arrested did not share these same statistics as those who had. So one man, James Duran, the Dean of Discipline at a middle school in Denver, he reported a history of being like a repeat suspender. According to him, I was suspending upwards of 300 kids a year. And I'll tell you, I'll admit it, that's just what we did in schools. We suspended kids. Looking back, it was a big cop out. Basically, it just gave kids permission to not be in school. So suspensions just don't work basically at a classroom level or at a personal individual like child level. Daniel Kim, an organizer with Denver's Padres Unidos says, there's a way to get kids out of the classroom, but it's a really short-sighted view because that kid is coming back, Um, which is kind of what you're talking about too. Like when you come back from a suspension, it's almost impossible to keep up with your work to Mm -hmm. make sure you're getting back on track. And in 2010, more than 3 million students were suspended for school which was double the level of suspensions in the 1970s when all of this started. Which is um, weird to me because wasn't the crime rate actually higher in yeah, the 70s? Exactly. The crime like, rate were was people wide, way higher. Being like, if you're going to go by that metric, like by that metric, they were being badder. Yeah, they were more <laughs> bad. Um, in 2013, one seven-year-old uh, in Maryland was suspended for chewing a Pop-Tart into the shape of a gun. I know, little baby, seven-year-old. In 2014, a senior at a Michigan high school was fully expelled for forgetting a pocket knife in her purse, very similar to my friend, Uh. and another student uh, at one school was expelled for making air guns with their fingers. What? Yeah. So we're just suspending kids for absolutely any reason just to kind of get them out of the way, get them out of my line of sight or whatever. So this kind of brings us to, like, well, what do we do about it? Um, And according to a research study published by Education Next, any effort to maintain safe and orderly school climates must take into account the clear and negative consequences of exclusionary discipline practices for young students, and especially young students of color, which last well into adulthood. The Kirwan Institute blames cultural deficit thinking, which leads educators to harbor negative assumptions about the ability, aspirations, and work ethic of these students, especially poor students of color, based on the assumption that they and their families do not value education. So as NEA.org explains, these racist perceptions create a stereotype that students of color are disrespectful and disruptive with zero tolerance policies then exploit. A major place that this happens is at the principal level. One study found that principals who often oversee the suspension and expulsion of students were the major driver in the frequency and severity of school discipline. And principals who doled out high numbers of suspensions or expulsions at one school would do the same at the next if they changed workplaces. However, an additional opportunity to fix this issue is at a teacher level. Uh, To me, the obvious issue is racism. As Charlotte Hayer, president of the Richmond uh, Education Association explains, for teaching and learning to take place, schools must be safe and caring spaces. She says, you need to teach teachers how to build relationships with students who might not be like them. Which gets to the root of the issue. Teachers and school administrators are bringing their own racism into the classroom with them, now enforced by a racist police state at their back and like readily available on campus, like right there. So it seems like teachers view all students of color as a potential threat or violent criminal, like just waiting to happen. And they just want them out of the classroom at any cost. Even as juvenile crime rates decrease in the US, along with adult crime rates, we see that people still seem to think that school violence is a growing problem. And this fear of violence makes students of color the target. 
which is obviously due to like systemic racism that paints especially black men as a threat. And we carry this all the way down to how we view black children, even at the four-year-old level in preschools. Mm. We've demonized men of color and we've demonized youth. And in doing so, we've made youth of color a primary target for the full violence of our racist police state, which we've now invited into our schools. So I found this really interesting um, article written by Nancy A. Heitzeg, who's a professor of Professor of Sociology and Program Director of Critical Studies of Race and Ethnicity at St. Catherine University in St. Paul. This paper is called Education or Incarceration, Zero Tolerance Policies and the School to Prison Pipeline. And uh, a few sentences from this paper like really summed it up quite nicely, I thought. So I'm gonna read this now, it's a big, it's a big quote. The school to prison pipeline does not exist in a vacuum. It is deeply connected to a socio-political climate that is increasingly fearful and punitive. The tendency towards criminalization and incarceration has seeped into the schools and with each year, the legal net ensnares younger and younger children. TV news constructs a portrait of crime, criminals and victims that is not supported by any data. In general, the research indicates that violent crime and youth crime is dramatically overrepresented. Crime coverage has increased in spite of falling crime rates. African-Americans and Latinos are overrepresented as offenders and underrepresented as victims. Some estimates indicate that as much as two thirds of violent crime coverage focused on youth under the age of 25. The context for the current climate of repressive youth policies was set back in the late 80s and throughout the 90s. Media generated hysteria inextricably linked teen super predators, gang violence and the crack cocaine epidemic and all were unmistakably characterized as issues of race. The coverage of the youth gangs, which focused almost exclusively on African-American and Latino gangs, exaggerated the extent of gang membership and gang violence, contributing to the creation of moral panic. Headlines screamed dire warnings about legions of teen super predators that would come of age by 2010. And of course, they were urban, they were black, and they were brown. These media representations have real consequences. TV news coverage of crime reflects and reinforces the culture of fear. So I liked that quote because it kind of ties in like a lot of ideas we talk about a lot in all of our episodes. And it seems like the school to prison pipeline kind of like reflects all of the different things that we know to be true about how our country operates from like the fear perspective, from the media perspective, from our ideas of danger, from like the current like way that we try to do this thing in the United States today where we pretend like we're post-race and we just never address like our legacy of racism. Mm -hmm. And it seeps into all these different things. And we say like, well, no, that's not racist. It's just raw data that we see over here. But like, we refuse to acknowledge the data is built on a legacy of racism. Or the interpretation of the data. Right, exactly. So just like prison abolition advocates for fighting, um, like with a transformative and restorative practice on the prison level, education advocates are uh, fighting for restorative and transformative action at the education levels as well. Restorative practices in the classroom encourage educators to get to the root of disciplinary issues, kind of like you were talking about. Like, why is nobody just sitting down with kids and being like, hey, what's going on with you? These practices encourage teachers to have in-depth, facilitated conversations with students. And uh, when issues arise, they can practice empathy and accountability for how everyone's actions affect each other. And at the transformative level, well, it's the same shit it always is, man. It's racism, ableism, and capitalism. We need to work to undo the centuries of systemic inequality that the country was built on. And as consumers of media, even like politics as media, we need to employ critical thinking skills to know when we're being lied to. The capitalist corporate two-party machine will always benefit from us fearing the other at a racial and ethnic level, but also simply at an age level. Like teenagers are not the enemy, they're kids. And as adults, it's our job to look out for them, build a better world for them to grow into and protect them from harm. Instead, it seems adults are hellbent on becoming the harm these kids will have to encounter. Educator Kevin Gilbert, who we talked about earlier, put it simply, but perhaps best by saying, we need to step back and look at our discipline structures. We need to make sure that they're going to help and not hurt students. So yeah, what do you think? School to prison pipeline. Oh, yeah, it's, it's awful. It is like everything we've been talking about magnified. And I just think about the thing where it's like, you can't just sit down and talk to a kid and be like, hey, what's up? Like, what's going on here? Like, if a kid is actually being like a disruption or like making it hard to like teach the other kids, like there's something else going on that's like happening at like a systemic level. And also it just, I don't, this is kind of maybe like my brain works where it's like, I don't know if this is quite a linear thought, but I'm like, how come like as adults, we are so weird to children 
And it's like, shouldn't we were kids once? We were yeah. teenagers once. How come we're like, oh, we have to punish these kids or like they're these like separate like weird entities where it's just like they're just uh, people who are not as old as us. So it's like, how come we can't just be like allies to kids or just be like, okay, how do we work this out between our generations rather than being like, fuck these kids. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what it is. All these adults in school are just like, fuck these kids, call the cops. And you're just like, dude, what? Like, this is gnarly. But okay, I have kind of a hot take. So my hot take is that I think that people like the idea of children, um, like parents like the idea of having children or like teachers like the idea of working with children. But I think that like, they don't often have the patience that it takes to really like sit down and work with another human life as it's learning and growing. And that could be like a condition of capitalism, right? Like teachers might be stressed out because work is a lot harder than they thought it would be. And because they're not being paid enough and maybe they just don't have like the mental capacity to deal with this, which I'm like sympathetic for and empathetic for, but also that doesn't absolve them of accountability. Like yeah, you're I, a teacher calling the cops on your kids. What the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. And it's like, I understand. And it's like, it also is a product of capitalism because like schools are the one place in this country that is basically socialized. You go to school for free. That's true. You, you know, it's like, you know, most people go to public school. Here, yeah. And it is mandated. Like, that is, and it's like, and I think because of kind of like the Reaganomics type thing, where it's just like, people realize that this is like a really big socialist part of America. So to me, there there's a, a reason why schools are tied to property taxes and like low schools with lower incomes get less resources. Yeah, I think also, like, when you look at, like, um, schools being, like, a thing that the public can access, it is pretty telling that, like, suspensions are a way that we see schools denying access to black and brown students. Yeah, and it's, like, it's also just, like, if, you know, if schools had all the resources that they need, like, it, it goes against, like, the, the capitalistic ethos of like you are as worthy as much as you produce and that's kind of like schools now it's like you're you're only a worthy student if you fit into the model of school you can sit for eight hours you can pay attention for eight hours you don't speak up against authority even if the authority figure is wrong right you know all these things it's like very it's like i don't know it's kind of like fascist like i mean I am, I do not have a background in education, but to me, like, a thing that I know just from anecdotal experience, being a teenager, like, punishment never actually solves the issue. Right, you need positive reinforcement, and you also need just, like, conversations. Like, I think a lot about my dad. My dad um, was a really, really good parent, and I think the thing that made him a really good parent is he was very patient, and he always took time to sit down and explain things to me. And I never would have done something that would have inconvenienced my dad because I viewed him as like, we're on the same team. Like my dad's my partner in life. Like he's going to help me figure things out. And I got to like, even just as little as like, we're at the store. Like I'm going to make sure not to cause any inconvenience for him while we're at the store, you know, because we're on the same team and I don't want to make his day harder. And I think that's like what happens when adults take the time to like sit down with teenagers and, you know, remember that they're children and they're in this like weird liminal state right where they're not quite like little kids and they're not quite adults it's a transitionary state but like you still need to like sit down with them like explain your goals and listen to what their goals are too you know like there has to be like mutual respect and that takes patience and that takes time and you have to be okay doing that and you know what we don't have you know time is money yeah exactly (laughs) it's it's so funny because my mom said something while I was visiting that like kind of pissed me off but I was like you're technically right she's like we live in a capitalist society. And I was like, uh, and I was like, you technically are correct. Yeah. <laughs> like where it's just like, time, like for many people, time is money. Like very if, much. If you think about teachers too, like maybe it's, you know, they get paid whatever amount, like, but being, spending time with students, maybe it takes more time than you're getting paid for. Or you're just like, damn, I also got a life outside of work. I have 40 other kids to think about. And, you know, some people, some people have the time and they're great teachers. And I think we all remember the teachers who were really good to us and it kind of changed our lives. 
you know? Yeah, one of the teachers that was really, really important in my life was my debate coach. And I remember, like, one time I went and sat in on a class she was teaching. And she was a pretty new teacher. She was, like, a young teacher. So they gave her the hardest English class because the way it worked at our school is, like, if you were a teacher, the longer you were there, you got, like, the higher-level classes. So she was new. So she had basically um, the kids who were, like, in and out of class a lot. Like, our our school, a lot of kids didn't go to school very with very, with very much consistency. Like, we also had, like, a program where um, we would – taken students who had recently been released from prison and wanted to like complete their degrees like on campus you know we had all these interesting programs at my school so her class was full of students who weren't who had been in and out of class a lot you know they weren't going to continuation school they were trying to make a go of it at our school but they were like the difficult kids basically and I was sitting in on one of her classes with them once and you know she was a really good teacher and she was like really trying to engage the students and I saw this one kid who was just like not paying attention and I sat down next to him and we were the same age, you know, and I was just like, Hey, like, I have a question. Like, why don't you care about school? Like, I don't know. I just always try to get a good grade and like, if I can, cause why not? Why don't you care though? And he was like, I don't know. It's just like, what's it going to do for me? You know? And I was like, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, I guess like if you don't want to go to college or anything like that and you know, I didn't know that then, but I now know that even going to college, just that doesn't mean your life is going to be great. It gives you like a, like what, like a 6% advantage over income or something like that. But I just asked him, I was like, well, what do you want to do instead? Like, what sounds better to you? And he's like, well, I don't know. It's like, I can go to school and do well and what, get like a job at Burger King and make minimum wage. Like, I'm not going to live off that. So when I asked him what he wanted to do instead, he was like, well, my brother steals cars and that's really good money. So I'll probably just steal cars with my brother. And then I was just like, oh, yeah, for sure. Like, how can I argue with that? You know, like, you can't argue with that. Like, stealing cars is better money than whatever the fuck you get out of sitting through class and trying your best to do well and getting a high school diploma and then getting, like, hired at a minimum wage shitty-ass job, you know? So, you know, we, like, created this system where the the options aren't even good. People, kids don't see the incentive. And it's hard because you want to sit down with them and be like, oh, maybe there is an incentive at the end of this. But realistically, like... I don't know what is there's not even a good incentive to to reason with kids why they should care about this shit yeah and to me it's like maybe a different and I'm I'm kind of thinking this on the fly is like maybe the reason for school should not be to prepare people for the workforce it should be like a little model society for kids where or you know mm-hmm. where it's just like this is how we all get along. What are you interested in? How do you figure it out? How do you interact with all the other all the other kids your age? Or, like, how do you get along with people? Like, having, like, clubs and, you know, like, what are you interested in? Like, I think it's, like, maybe a model for a bigger society where it's not about, you know, doing a job. It's, like, what are you interested in and how can you best get along with your peers? Right. I think also an interesting thing is that, and having friends and doing fun stuff and having friends yeah like a lot of classroom environments also like punish like the kids who like talk back or act out or like class clowns you know Mm -hmm. but like the class clown is like usually not actually a bad kid like that's somebody who does have like a talent and a goal and that's entertaining people and that involves like a huge amount of empathy to be able to like understand what people relate to what they think is funny you Mm -hmm. know and things like that aren't really rewarded either they're seen as like disruptive or distractions and you know, it just ties into that whole thing where you're like, school, okay, school is a way that we're trying to, like, prepare people to engage in capitalism, and it's really, like, appropriate in a fucked up sad way that right out of the gate, these schools are putting cops there, the cops are targeting black and brown kids, getting them put in juvenile detention centers, and then they can expect a lifetime of increased risk of incarceration, increased risk of being sent to prisons where they might be forced to do, like, forced labor like slave labor against their will and you're like in a weird fucked up way like schools are preparing kids for the real world because the real world is equally as fucked they're both so fucked and it shouldn't happen at any level yeah i mean if you're gonna have the school system i'm like we have now under like capitalism it's like why don't you prepare like kids with what you really need to know like you kind of need to know like some basic stuff to like yeah do your taxes yeah or it's like taxes finances like maybe like 
like at my school, it's like you could learn, you could like get your like car degree. You could like weld. Oh, that would be like so a, sick. I would love to have done that. Yeah, I did welding. I don't have my certificate. But yeah. I got, actually, I got certified in CAD. That's cool. So I was like, did drafting for like over like two or three years, maybe even yeah. four. But like, I am a, technically a certified drafts person. Because of your high school. Because of my high school. That's like, wild. That's actually, that's cool. like, I got jobs because of that. Yeah. Like, but I'm, I'm just saying, like, it doesn't really prepare, like, yeah, it, it really only prepares kids for the carceral state. Yeah, for the carceral state. <laughs> it's like, you here are your two options. You do labor for, like, a mere pittance and, like, capitalism, and you keep your head down, and you do your job, and you don't cause any disruptions. Uh, or you do forced labor for, like, no money in the carceral prison system. Like, those are your options, and we're going to route you accordingly. And it's, like, a fucked up sorting hat, right? It's, like, oh my God. it's a racist sorting hat. That's what <laughs> school is. We put the cops there, and they the racist, the hat in the Hogwarts, what is it? It's racist Hogwarts. It's racist Hogwarts, all the schools. Anyway, so, yeah, that's the, uh... The, the school to prison pipeline. Thank you to our listener, Charlie Wright, for recommending this topic. It, it's really interesting. It is interesting how it takes into consideration so many things we've done episodes on. Yeah. You know, and it all does lead to this point. And I did really like the quote from um, the essay at the end that it's like, it doesn't exist in a vacuum, man. Like, this mm-hmm. issue exists in the world we live in where... It's all influenced by the fear-mongering we see on TV, by, you know, like, Republican Party platforms that encourage us to fear our neighbors. And it just comes down to, like, the most fucking punk thing you can do is care about other people, man. Yeah. Like, take care of each other and fuck cops and they shouldn't be on school campuses. (laughs) Keep your friends off the floor. Yeah. In the pit. In the pit. Pick them up and (laughs) fucking get rid of the the cops on the school. It's just fucked, man. ACAB, including your fucking school cops. <laughs> Burn it down. Okay, that's it. Do you have anything else you want to add before we're done with the episode? Uh, oh, um, the you can also give us um, suggestions for future episodes on our Patreon. Oh, yeah. That's how, um, that's how our listeners suggested this one. So if you join our Patreon and you ever want to message us, like, ideas for future episodes, that's really fun and cool for us. And we like that. Um, yeah. All right. But that's the episode. Yeah. And it's a uh, – wait patreon.com slash pick me up i'm scared um but we love you even if you don't go yeah. on patreon yeah it's two dollars it's two dollars to join the patreon it's pretty cheap but it's two dollars every month so you know that's 24 dollars a year that you don't have to give us your 24 bucks a year but we, we you know we appreciate it yeah but we like your 24 bucks a year if you <laughs> want to give it to us that's 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 the episode